Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 71st episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is why female entrepreneurship is booming. I'm joined by Angelica Mellon. She is the author of She Made It, the toolkit for female founders in the digital age. The publisher is Kogan Page. Angelica is the editor-in-chief of About Time magazine, and she's the UK's rising voice for championing women founders and entrepreneurs. She's appeared on the BBC News, the LBC Business Hour, and has been featured in The Telegraph, Forbes, and Real Business. Welcome to the show, Angelica. Hi, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So give us a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind. Absolutely. So I've been hosting events in the female empowerment and entrepreneurship space for about five or so years. And um, the book came about from hosting just so many panel events where we'd get to the end of the panels and I'd hear women asking the same questions again and again around confidence, starting out, imposter syndrome, kind of practical things around business. And that was how the the idea of the book came about was, I was like, it'd be great to put this all in one place. Um, So you have a lot of those kind of common problems that I was seeing answered. So the book came out in January. I interviewed around 30 female founders for the book from all different kind of stages in their business, looking at how they started out, how they reached success and the challenges they faced along the way. Okay. Well, there's a lot of things right in what you said already that I want to explore a bit more. So why is it, because this does come up often in your book, um, lacking for confidence and this fear of imposter syndrome. Why, why is that uh, such a, a theme that you've experienced? I mean, it's only something I can attest to anecdotally, but I have seen that a lot of women who I've in my network and I've advised are scared of making that leap when they don't feel totally ready And I've seen that to be quite different with men that I've worked with who often will launch into something without feeling 100% prepared. I think women often want to have as much experience as possible to know that they know their field and that they feel like their success is perhaps a bit more guaranteed. There is a a real fear of failure. I I mean, there's a fear of failure for everyone, but I think women in, in particular really want to feel very, very prepared for something. And we can't always prepare everything. Well, I've also seen some statistics which are disappointing, if not alarming, that uh, if investors are involved, the VCs tend to to favor male entrepreneurs far too often. Is that maybe also part of the picture here? Yeah, absolutely. There's so much data to show that all female teams are very unlikely to get investment. They want to see that there's mixed teams. And of course, all male teams tend to get more investment um, in the VC world, especially. I think that the, the challenges are, are quite, there's quite a few challenges going on here around investment. I think that's one of the reasons that women often end up doing more kitchen table businesses that start small and don't uh, grow at such a scale. And they also don't have such global aspirations. 
Um, this isn't the same for every business, but it is rare for there to be a business that is like a unicorn that's founded by a woman. Um, and I don't think that's by chance. I think that that is to do with opportunities and what women are kind of told that they can do and achieve. Okay. And what are some of the, you, you mentioned the book's inspiration was in no small part, all of the, the common problems that people would, you know, raise in the conferences and maybe inside conversations as well. So we, we've touched on one, which is confidence and imposter syndrome. You maybe want to, you know, elucidate a couple more. Yeah, absolutely. So the experience one was something we talked about, um, changing industries. So women feeling so one of the one of the ways that I describe it is like a monkey bars and men are often happy to move between the monkey bars from side to side and try things out. And women want to see it more like a traditional career ladder where you're going up and it's the, there's a more straight path. So changing industries feels quite overwhelming, I think. And then there's okay. another consideration, which is um, both good and bad for why women start businesses, but it's a consideration around flexibility and families. So a lot of the women that I interviewed for my book started a business because they realized that they couldn't continue with their corporate career, for example, when they had kids. It wasn't something that they could kind of do flexibly or in the way that suited lifestyle. So women often start businesses around their like uh, mid to late 30s because they realize that their career just can't progress in the way they want it to. And it's that impetus of that change in their personal life that is like the starting block for starting a business, which I think is really interesting and also sometimes comes out of that change in personal life. So many women that I interviewed started something because for example, they had children and they realized there was a gap in the market for X product or X service out of that experience. And they used that as a, as an impetus to start something. Oh, no, that makes a lot of sense. They, they've uh, surveyed the landscape. They have some life experiences behind them and they, they see the need. You do have a lot of stories and interviews from female founders in the book. Uh, I don't want you to choose among your favorite children necessarily and say one's your favorite of all time, but maybe one that's instructive or particularly poignant or caught you by surprise as to what you learned in the interview. Is maybe one you can foreground or share with us? Well, one actually that comes to mind off the back of what we just talked about there is LV, which is founded by a woman called Tanya Boller. And LV is a pelvic floor trainer and they also have a breast pump. And it's the largest, the company is the largest femtech raise in history. They raised $42 million um, in, a, in a number of series A and B found um, investment rounds. And I think she's just a, such an inspirational founder in that she had children. She realized there was a gap in the market for this product and really went after that, that, mar- um, that market and created a very unique, trademarkable product um, that really served a need and had actually shown that there's such a gap in femtech. And there's so many things that could radically improve women's lives, but just there hasn't been the science and the R&D on it. So she was someone that really stood out to me. And I think also just raising that amount of money is incredible. And the confidence that that takes to walk into a room of often, you know, male um, investors and have to pitch something quite as um, unique and personal as that as well. Sure. Well, I've always I've done a lot of work in the pharma field. I'm always shocked by how many studies have involved males, male patients, mm. and how rare it is 
for it to be an even an evenly you know gendered study. It's just it's just ridiculous. And she had uh, amazing stories of going in <laughs> very early on to her first rounds of investment, and they would say, "Oh, we don't really get it, or it's not for us. <laughs> we can't invest in it." And I think you know, coming back to what we spoke about earlier about investment, that's one of the big problems is that if if an investor doesn't see that a problem or a service is for them, then they don't connect with it and they may not invest in it. And I think that's kind of problematic because if we want to grow in these interesting areas, it can't always be things that directly involve all four, our four men. Yeah, no. How about, how about some empathy and some vision? <laughs> that's a little bit more encompassing. So speaking of another female entrepreneur, I was struck in the acknowledgments part of your book. I don't think I've ever asked a question in my podcast about the acknowledgments, but here's the first. So you say to Taylor Swift, without whom there would probably be no book at all. Um, that That's intriguing. Please please say more. Well, Taylor Swift, um, I wrote this book in, in lockdown, in the first lockdown in the UK. Um, and Taylor Swift graced us with many a great song during that time. And um, I, I'm sure you know from writing books, but sometimes they end up being late into the night um, activities. And so she she kept me company, good old Taylor. And I think without her music, I don't know, it kind of made a quite a solitary experience into one that I felt like I was sharing with someone. So I very much appreciate it. And also the fact that she was creating music in a time when we were in this global pandemic and everything was in lockdown. I think that was quite inspiring to me. Sure. Well, she's certainly someone who's shown uh, compassion, fortitude, and uh, real smarts as to how she's taking care of her career. So, so speaking of that, I want to go to the title of the episode, which is Why Female Entrepreneurship is Booming. Uh, don't leave us teased any longer. What is the answer? Well, I think there's a lot to do with the pandemic in that women have found that working from home and juggling childcare and their careers and everything that comes with those domestic responsibilities, their jobs have not been sustainable um, when they've been doing that from a home capacity. And I think for a lot of women, it's been the impetus to say, actually, I want to take control of things and I want to start a business or I want to go freelance and work on my own terms and create a life that is truly flexible and free and able to kind of juggle the work-life integration better. Um, so I think that that's given, given it's just highlighted that really big problem of childcare and it's given a bit of an impetus to start businesses. So I think that's one of the reasons. And then the other reason I think is just simply so many people, not just women, have found that they have been made redundant during this time or they've gone on furlough and they've got sick of furlough and they've left a huge upheaval of our careers and our work. And I think that in itself is very potent as a time, as an energy. And people have realized, actually, I want to do my own thing and this is my moment. So in the UK, from September 2019 to September 2020, there was double the amount of businesses registered in the UK, which I think is an amazing statistic, just showing that when we were all put in lockdown and couldn't go anywhere, people suddenly thought, this is my moment to do that thing I've been putting off forever or to start something. So out of that difficult time came all this inspiration. Yeah, no, here in the States, we're calling it the Great Resignation. I think 2.8% of the workforce resigned their current jobs. Uh, I was interviewing another woman for this podcast. She's a career coach. She said something like, was it 90% of her clients are thinking about changing their, their job, their company, or their entire field that they're in in their career. So it does seem like a collective, both midlife crisis and, and uh, in the positive sense, a real chance to reevaluate what's important to oneself 
and where you want to go with your life. Speaking of which, in your preface, and I don't mean to sound like the former poet I was, but there's a lot of alliteration here with the P word. You say purpose over profit, and you also say our passions drive our productivity. Uh, both really important statements, I suspect, for the book and your orientation. Do you want to talk about those? So it's purpose over profit and our passions drive our productivity. Yeah, so purpose over profit really is what it says. I think that if you want to have that sustained enthusiasm for your business and your career, you have to feel that sense of purpose and fulfillment with it. And, um, you know, I've learned from my own time in business that simply trying to make something work financially, even if it does work out and it can be a great incentive, you don't sustain that enjoyment of it and keep feeling driven unless you're getting a sense of fulfillment from it. So I think, you know, drilling down into why do you actually want to do this? Who are you trying to serve? And what change do you want to bring about in your own life? Like, what are your actual reasons for wanting to make this change or launch this business and connecting with that audience or that greater purpose of who you're serving with it? is really important for the sustained enthusiasm. So like I've mentioned before, when I was hosting these panel events, I would see lots of women who'd started businesses, were very excited about them for the first few months and then struggled with the momentum. And I think we've all done that where we've launched projects, we felt really fired up. And then after a few months, it's felt like it was waning and you can't connect with that momentum that you once had and you can't quite remember why you're doing it or what's inspiring you. So I think not taking the focus onto profit, but onto purpose is, is super important. Um, and then in terms of productivity and passion, again, like we're often just in our own way. And I find whenever I'm not being productive, it's because I'm not really that passionate about what I'm doing. And sometimes the passion comes when you start to see results. Uh, you may start to make money from something or you get great feedback from customers or, or clients and then your passion kind of is reignited and that's normal. But I do think you need to have that sense of drive to actually be productive um, uh, you know, we can take away all the things that often make us unproductive, like tapping out of social media or not checking our emails. But at the end of it, I think if you're not passionate about what you're doing, you will just slip into those bad habits again. Well, you're very high energy, so it's hard to imagine you without passion. But uh, I suppose all of us do have our moments where we wane a little bit. Um, is it possible that female entrepreneurs in particular, more so than male entrepreneurs, the, the ability to connect with the audience and have that sense of purpose is possibly even more important? Is that a is that a fair line of inquiry? I think so. And I also, I don't know about you, but I see that a lot of female owned businesses, the women are the face of their businesses. I think women are really great at those soft skills of um, talking to their audiences, getting feedback, you know, the visibility things like going on Instagram and speaking directly to an audience or showing how their brand is meant to be worn or showing how they apply their makeup. Like those are small instances, but I think women are really great at that, at that stuff at that community building side of things, um, which again feeds into purpose because when you're connecting with your audience, you feel more drive towards doing things. So with our female entrepreneur events, it's mainly for the feedback that I get from them that makes me want to do them. It's for that sense that you're giving to a community and you're kind of of service. So making sure also there's avenues where you can really connect with your audience face-to-face if you can, but otherwise on digital platforms as well. Yeah, no, I think that observation holds up from my personal experiences. I divide the men I know in my life between those I can 
have a conversation with and those I can merely do something with, such as play sports, for instance. Mm. And my my mom teases my dad and says, what's a conversation for you guys on the golf course? Meet you at the green? Is that all it comes to? You mentioned in the book uh, that according to Women Count 2020, uh, this is quite striking that those executive committees on which women have, you know, at least 33% uh, membership are much more successful companies, a profit margin 10 times greater. Again, does that tie into a sense of giving back and connecting and so forth? Or are there additional explanations? I think it's also just getting different voices. Um, it, it's really hard It's really hard to create a business that fits different needs, that has like a different and varied marketing approach if you've got a very similar makeup within your company. And like the more diverse, the better, because you have a sounding backboard of a rich variety of people. Um, and that really helps test out different ways of approaching your business and marketing it. So it's only in your benefit to have a really broad range in terms of ethnicity, gender, age, everything that you can. And if you don't have that within your business, trying to build that out so you can you have that platform, um, perhaps on social media where you can speak to different people and you can get different voices. Um, otherwise, we tend to be speaking again and again to the same people and creating a business that only fits with a certain demographic. No, no, I very much agree. I think we tend to fall back to our own comfort level in my forthcoming book, Blah, 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 A Snarky Guide to Office Lingo. One of the definitions is diversity, and the answer is, in senior management, a short white guy. Mm. Uh, Because too often there is not that diversity that I think does really allow you to to market and understand uh, your customer base so much better when you're you're more diverse. Um, I'm also interested in... Uh, some other aspects here, co-founder. So if you're creating a business uh, and you're bringing in someone else, uh, you mentioned in the book, uh, you're looking for complementary skill set, you're aligned on vision and values, uh, you're flexible, open, are you some more money and work ethic? So there's good criteria, they're really important criteria, but I know from looking at statistics that it's, it's shocking how often the original team, including sometimes the original co-founder, uh, doesn't last that long. So what have you seen from your own experiences or conversations? What is, what's a good way to have that conversation and make sure it's grounded enough that the uh, co-partnership is, is going to sustain itself? Well, it's amazing. You can have all those things and it can still go horribly wrong. So I don't, sure. think, I don't think that's the <laughs> last rule with, with co-founders. And you know, sometimes it surprised me, people I know who are very similar in skill sets and it works really well. So I don't think there's one rule. Um, I think communication is very important, how you're working together as a team and how you're leading the management style within the business. I think it's really challenging to be a solopreneur running a business on your own. That said, for me personally, I've enjoyed the experience because I don't have to sort of constantly negotiate with another person. And I like to collaborate, but I also like to be able to run with something. I'm not sure having a, a kind of another person to check everything off with would work for me personally. So I think it's also about understanding yourself and the way that you like to work. I've seen very often with um, co-founder relationships that one of them experiences burnout. And I think that's a a rising epidemic is maybe perhaps one person just works harder or feels the pressure more. And I've seen often what one co-founder leaving a team after a matter of time, because they just feel like they simply can't do it anymore. Cause that can be the nature of startups is that they are very fast paced and can be quite exhausting emotionally and, and also just in terms of work hours. 
Yeah, no, I very much agree with that. In fact, if I was going to add one thing to your your list of things to get aligned on is how well do they handle stress? Mm. Because uh, I've been a solo entrepreneur myself and uh, it's definitely stressful. Um, I'm curious then if you you mentioned that one thing one can do in, in launching a business, if, especially if you don't have the funds, is to skill swap with another professional. Um, have you done that yourself? If you haven't, is there some instances that inspired you to mention that tip in the book? Yeah, I ha- I did do it myself in the early days of um, starting a magazine when I didn't have an awful lot of budget because we weren't really making anything yet. And I swapped with people where I knew I had something to offer and I needed something from them and it could be a mutually beneficial arrangement. So for example, I had some photographs of me taken and in exchange, um, being someone that likes words and plays around with words for a living, I wrote their website copy. So I think things like that can be really useful when you don't have money to offer. What can you offer in lieu of that? And it can be beneficial for both of you. And there's lots of um, platforms where you can do that and websites for for Skillshares, but I think it can be really useful. Um, The other thing is trying to get someone to teach you something. So they're not simply doing something for you, but just showing you how it's done so that you can go away and do it for yourself. Um, I think there's so so often we just want to pay someone to outsource a problem, but if we can learn to do it and take away that fear, that's a lot more empowering as a business owner. Yeah, no, uh, certainly. I mean, you know, marketing, other needs are likely to come back again, maybe in slightly different form. And if you can add the skill set in, uh, I think that's tremendous. Um, you ask a question of your readers in the book, and I'm going to ask it of you as well. Uh, which was what excites and terrifies you in equal measure? Hmm. Unfortunately, as my career has gone on, I feel like I've done <laughs> so many things that scare me that I'm now like searching like an adrenaline junkie trying to find the thing that will scare me next. Um, <laughs> so like, I love public speaking. I always have. So going on a stage for me is fun. It's not something I find particularly daunting and the same with kind of tv and and radio so I am looking for that thing I did actually go to Thorpe Park which is a theme park in the UK the other week just to go on some roller coasters because I really felt the need to feel some fear um, and gave myself a bit of a roller coaster hangover (laughs) <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I, I was in Dubai some years ago and there was a water park next to the hotel where I was going to be speaking and uh, there was a very fairly dangerous uh, ride one could go on and I came to realize I was I was the only person over the age of 25 who was doing it uh, but I, I just couldn't resist um, the thing I, so, is I have some other books in the pipeline that I'm writing at the moment and I think as you probably know you do get those moments when you're writing a book that you think who am I to write this how am I an expert who on earth is going to pick this up you know and I think that can be really challenging when you're hindering yourself in the creative process you really want to create something great but you have that voice in your head that you have to quieten that says you're not ready to do this I think that's the thing that gives me the fear is that someone will turn around and say, mm, I don't know why you were the one to write this, or you're not old enough to do this, or you haven't lived enough. And it's something that I've worked on personally, that um, it's okay to continue to create and to strive to create without being the perfect person, without having finished everything or lived every life experience. Well, I, I, I suspect you've already packed a lot into your years. Um, I, I definitely detect high energy and uh, risk-taking uh, in the most attractive way. Um, so let's talk about uh, stepping out in terms of promoting books. I, I think one part of the book that's particularly strong is when you start to mention you know, social media skills, uh, how to deal with the press, and so forth. So if we can just – maybe these are tips that will help listeners – 
uh, if they're ever debating writing their own books someday or just other ways which they need to promote their businesses. Um, for instance, Instagram. Uh, what kind of captions have you used or seen other people use or any tips or guidelines for how to make that effective? I think the interesting thing with Instagram is it's changed in the last few years from being a photo-led platform to a value-led platform. And now users of the app are expecting value from the content. So they want tips, they want recipes, they want guidance, they want advice. They want things that they can save and take away and feel like they've learned something from it. They don't just want to see a pretty shiny image with the kind of exception maybe of fashion influencers. But for the most part, I think it's become a a lot more of an information-led platform and more of a text-led platform as well. So When you're struggling to create content or a content strategy, I would think about what value can I offer? What's my expertise? What insights do I have? And how can I make that into really digestible formats for my audience? Okay. And on Twitter, you said that one thing you found that's effective is asking questions. Any any guidelines or context you can give us there? Yeah, I think with Twitter, it's different. I think with Twitter, you want to be setting yourself up as an expert, someone with an insight or a a particular specialism into an industry. And one of the ways you can do that is creating opportunities for people or using it as a way to gather feedback um, or, you know, speaking to your customers or clients. So I think Twitter is a lot more conversationally led and you need to be thinking about ways in which you can spark conversation probably a little bit less so than Instagram, which I think is more value led. So asking questions on Twitter is is a good way to go Um, or connecting with journalists as well. Like Twitter is where all the journalists are hanging out. So if you want to build a PR strategy, that's a great place to be focusing your energy. Okay. Um, Sorry to be so tactical, but I'll ask at least one more question. You, uh, in terms of headlines, what are favorite ones you've created or favorite openings you've used for posting since we all know that the window of opportunity is often very brief to grab someone's attention on email yeah email yeah um so i would always try and do a combination of looking up the journalist that i'm emailing on social media for example and seeing what they're up to or something they've done recently or written and using a sense of personal connection for them to actually open the email so for example I've got a dog called Alfie which I talk about a lot anyone that emails me and says I saw that really cute photo of Alfie dressed like Santa Claus by the way this is my business like I'm always going to take note so if you can find some way of career creating a personal connection and a bit of charisma with the person you're getting in touch with. That's a great soft opening because, you know, journalists get hundreds of emails every day and they tend to all say similarish stuff. So try and create that personal connection. And, and you do mention that in terms of being a problem solver, being more personal, uh, but you also mentioned uh, being quirky, which I like a lot. My wife's business was called Quirky Design uh, after Circe, the goddess who turned men into pigs because uh, she lived in Greece for a while. But uh, I used to often call it quirky because you know, there was a kind of that flavor to it. Why, why is being quirky a benefit? Well, especially if you're trying to get your, your brand in front of journalists, like, and if you're sending them things, try and think of like unusual things to do rather than just sending a box with an item in it. Think of the story that you want to tell or the, the vibe that you want to be associated with. I think 
build it into something that has more of a storytelling element to capture their imagination. I think that's that's really great. And it, like I said, we just we get so many emails every day. So just trying to do something a little bit different really will just like help you stand out. I think very often we worry so much about trying to be super professional and we we end up being professional at the sake of being interesting and if I was to think <laughs> I would say go yeah. go interesting rather than yeah super corporate or just like doing everything perfectly like they would tell you to do in a, in a PR book yeah and being being too staid and just having no no flavor after mm-hmm. all yeah no I mean t- boring means there's no taste I mean it's it's even worse than having a bad taste in some cases yeah. um so what kind of, one last question, what kind of visualization techniques have you found most helpful? I, I'm very visually oriented. I think a lot of people are. Uh, how has this helped you? What what kind of techniques have, have uh, been, been at play for you? Well, I've, I've tried absolutely everything. One thing I did, before, <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, I'm a, I'm a bit of a guinea pig for the spirituality stuff. But one thing I, I did before this book came out was I did a vision board and I sat for an afternoon on a Sunday with some music playing and, and some, I think a glass of wine and some candles. And I went through all my magazines and I cut out different things that I wanted to associate with this book. So one was like a, was like a bestseller list and one was a beach which was the holiday I was going to treat myself to <laughs> there was a pandemic so that didn't happen but what I imagined I'd treat myself to if if that happened and I put that board in front of me and every time I looked up from when I was working I would see those things and I don't know whether or not it actually helped me get to some of those things but I do think it kept it front and center in my mind and it helped motivate me when I was feeling a bit you know like I was flagging or I'd lost purpose with writing the book it was in front of me to remind me why I was doing it so I think that's that's a useful thing that we can all do the same as maybe having a desktop background that reminds us of a place we'd like to go to or something we want to achieve just that visual reminder sure well it's been very charming Angelica I want to thank you so much for being my guest Uh, this has been episode number 71 why female entrepreneurship is booming my guest Angelica Mellon she is the author of she made it the toolkit for female founders in the digital age If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and sensorylogic.com or go to the New Books Network and uh, type in the show's name, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, and it will pop up and you can see the other guests I've had on. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, I took one from Asada Shakur, who said, dreams and reality are opposites. It's action that synthesizes them. Until next time, be kind and stay safe. Mm